Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone. Okay, so finally Super Bowl's behind us. Yes, Rihanna's pregnant. Can we all get over that now? Okay, but watching her pull off this wild live music video of sorts brought me back to 1981 and the launch of MTV, which, as you know, changed the entire landscape of music and talent and how bands and singers could break out and explode in popularity. See, up until MTV, musical acts, especially new ones, really only had one way to become popular, and that was through radio. DJs and program directors held enormous sway and power until MTV disrupted the whole universe. Suddenly, bands who could act while singing and dancing, I mean, think Van Halen's David Lee Roth and Madonna, who, by the way, nobody knew in 1981, were thrust into the spotlight. The disruptor behind the creation of MTV, Bob Pittman, a guy who grew up in a small town in Mississippi and whose first job at age 15 was, ironically, a radio announcer. Okay, stick with me, trivia time. First music video to debut on MTV when Bob launched it was a song called Video Kill the Radio Star by the Buggles. Now, here's the you-can't-make-this-up part of it. Today, as the chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia, Bob is the biggest force, not in TV, but back in radio. And his Jingle Ball and iHeartRadio concerts, which pack in multiple star acts in one seating, have become the new launching pad for upcoming talent. Bob is my guest today on his long, strange trip to success. Welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. Thank you. This is fun. I love that a guy who's pushing 70 is the one that Doja Cat and the Chainsmokers and Halsey. It's scary, isn't it? All begged to meet so they could get on the iHeartRadio stage. (laughs) How did you get to this point? I mean, it's amazing. I actually thought I retired when I was 49 years old. And I said, I'm never going to work again. And then I got a little bored and I started doing some investing. And I had this opportunity with this company called Then Clear Channel to invest. And I invested. And then they said, we talk into being the chairman. You don't have to work too hard. And then I worked a little harder and harder. And they said, you're already working hard. You said you wouldn't be CEO because you don't want to work hard. Why don't you be the CEO? And so I became the CEO expecting it to be a couple of years. And here I am 11 years later. So that was post 50. Well, post 50. It was late 50s. Interesting. Interesting. Right around the time that in the past people said, I'm winding down. And, And you know what it was for me? I realized that I'm an addict. And I touch the heroin again. Um, and I, you know, people say, I love golf. And I say, you know what I love? I love work. Work is my golf. And it's just fun. And I love being around the people. I love the ideas. I love building stuff. And this is my platform to do it. Well, I think about you. And, and of course, you're, you're very well known as the guy who helped found MTV. And what a disruption that really was in the entire music world. But what I find absolutely fascinating is that you were supposed to be a pilot. What? Well, I wanted to be a pilot. Unfortunately, I'm blind in one eye, so I could never meet the qualifications to be a commercial pilot. But I got, I loved airplanes, and I needed the job to pay for flying lessons. And the only job I could find in this little town in Mississippi 
was his radio announcer. And uh, and I got the job. Mississippi. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my M- God. Mississippi in the 1960s. Oof. Oh, I, you know, when I met you, I don't know, 20 years ago, I thought you had to be a native New Yorker who grew up in the entertainment industry because you just had that vibe. Boy, was I wrong. Tell me about growing up in Mississippi. Well, I grew up in Mississippi in the 50s and 60s. Colored only bathrooms and schools, and it was so segregated, so shameful. But, you know, when you first start growing up, you don't quite realize. And then as it begins to dawn on you what's going on. Now, fortunately for me, the whole civil rights movement began in the 60s. And so there was something, some way to get out of that. And by the time I graduated from high school, it was 50-50 white black in my high school graduating class. So I'm proud of that. But it was, you know, we're all, we're all uh, affected by what we grew up with. And so the civil rights movement was just critically important to me. My dad was very involved in it, my family, mother's family. And so that's sort of the, the thing that I still bring with me. And it's, it's so much about how we treat other people and the respect we have for other people and how, if you're not careful, things can be going on that are not so great. I mean, I'm looking at this wonderfully successful woman in front of that mic, but there was a time when I was going to high school that if you were a woman, you could be a teacher or a nurse or, mm. or a telephone operator. That was it. Uh, and they couldn't be investment bankers and lawyers, and it was very, very hard. And so I think, you know, I try and keep my eyes open and hope I influence other people to keep their eyes open about where are we inadvertently holding people back? Because don't we all benefit from when everybody participates and all of our fellow citizens have the same rights and the same opportunities? I mean, I grew up poor. I'm not poor now. I mean, we have opportunities to do something. And I didn't know anybody, but it was just... You know, uh, coming out of that background keeps me attuned to being sensitive to others. So there you are in this very small town in Mississippi, the town of? Brookhaven, Mississippi. Your dad was a Methodist minister. Okay, so all I'm thinking and conjuring up in my mind is John Lithgow in the movie Footloose. He played the minister who banned rock music in a small town. (laughs) I mean, and here you are, the guy who is promoting rock acts and singing acts. It's just, it's just too juicy. Tell me about your dad. Well, my dad was actually the opposite of that. My dad in the 1940s uh, graduated from college and went to Emory in Atlanta, got his master's degree, was a very educated thinker and uh, was very open to new ideas when Bill Clinton had all of his problems. And I said, Dad, what do you think about all this coming out? And he goes, you know, I believe in the redemptive power of love. And it was all about forgiveness, not blaming people. I grew up in this magical household. I didn't realize it was magical until I was too late. But I ne- my parents never fought. My parents would disagree, and they go, well, I don't know about that, honey. I think this. And they go, hmm, well, why do you think that, honey? And they'd have these discussions, but they wouldn't fight. And nobody was yelling at anybody. And I go, wow, what a gift, because I'm certainly not that good. Uh, and, and I so admire, and I go, how on earth did they pull that off? But he was that kind of guy and very supportive of, of, of me, as I said earlier in the civil rights movement, very much on the right side of that and uh, trying to integrate the Methodist Church, which had two separate conferences in the same geographic area. And I remember as a kid him reading this little red book called Robert's Rules of Order. And it turns out he was, um, they were going to have a meeting, they had an annual conference, and they have to vote on stuff. 
and he got people confused about what they were. And he was he was worried that the lay people would not be for integration. So it's, they were sort of confused about what they were voting on. And they said, everybody in favor, uh, please stand up. And my dad sat down and they all looked at him. So they all stood up. And then, of course, he was voting against his own resolution and, huh. and it passed. But it was those were the things of the day. And uh, it's uh, certainly a part of me. What did your parents think when you said, I've got to get at age 15 a radio announcing job so I can pay for the pilot lessons? Well, they I told them when I was 15, I said, I want to learn to fly and it's going to cost this much money. And they said, well, you better get a job. I tried to get a job in the men's clothing store, which was the cool job in town. No, no jobs. I tried to get a job as a bagging groceries at the Piggly Wiggly grocery store because that was really high paying because you got tips. No jobs. And I walked in a radio station and a guy named Bill Jones, who owned the radio station, said, hey, kid, uh, do you have good grades? Oh, yeah, pretty good grades. Do you get in trouble? Not really. And he goes, come in here. And he put me in a room sort of like this one, Mm -hmm. turned a recorder on, tore some teletype news off and said, read this. And in a minute he came in and let's do it. Say, okay, that's good enough. Go get your radio telephone operator's license so I can run the transmitter. And you're hired. And that began my career. But it was, by the way, I also washed airplanes. I filled airplanes up with gas. I did every odd job known to man to get the money to pay for flying lessons. I think uh, that is a just a great predictor of people that I speak to on this podcast. They they just grabbed at anything. They would just try anything to, to hustle, to make that money to reach a dream, which is so ironic because then, you know, today you are a pilot, but you couldn't be a commercial pilot. So you... I actually have an airline transport pilot's license. Nice. And But I have to have a waiver that I had to pass for each medical I have to had to take a test with the FAA to prove I could fly with one eye. Well, you definitely have a radio voice. Oh, you're so nice. Wow. I'm, I'm loving it. It's so mellifluous. This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we're going to be right back. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services marketplace connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. As I sit here, I, I know I have listeners saying, God, where did, where did he where did he go to college? Don't hunt for where Bob graduated from college because you didn't. No. It was I went to Millsaps College my freshman year and I got hired. If I was on the radio in Jackson, Mississippi, I got hired in Milwaukee. I went there 
went to school at Carroll College in Waukesha, Wisconsin, got hired in Detroit, went to Oakland University, <laughs> got hired in Pittsburgh, and I went to the University of Pittsburgh. Stop. Went to Chicago, and I was enrolled my senior year at the University of Chicago. I'm at NBC. Mind you, this is five years after I was on the air in Brookhaven. I'm at NBC in Chicago, replacing a guy who's 47, and I go, maybe I should wait out a semester just to get this station going. And then I waited out every semester for three years. And when I went to New York, I go, I'm not finishing college. (laughs) Yeah, I'm doing okay without it. So you were only 23 when you landed the programming job at WNBC, right? Right. The flagship radio station in New York City. That is a big gig, Bob. Can you explain where you got the confidence to be able at such a young age to walk in and work among executives who were a lot older than you? You know, I have no idea. I had this great mentor, Charlie Warner that I met him in Pittsburgh. He got fired and went to Chicago and he brought me with him to Chicago. And Charlie just said, you're a really smart kid. You go great. By the way, I didn't know where to dress. I didn't know how to do, I didn't know how to act. I knew nothing. He go, okay. He went to like St. Albans, went to Dartmouth and had worked at CBS in their heyday. And he goes, okay, here's where you buy, you got to wear a suit. Here's where you buy your suits. Here's where you're going to eat dinner. Here's what you do. Here's how you act and sort of helped me figure out how to fit in. Because people underestimate that if you're a kid from Mississippi, and there was no internet back then, there were not a lot of magazines, how would I learn that? And I had somebody that really believed in me. And I think today, would I hire a 20 year old kid to do this for? No, <laughs> I mean, I have no idea why Charlie <laughs> did that, but God bless him. I love him to death and thank God he did. How did you get to AOL? I know I'm skipping a bunch of unbelievable steps in your career, but this was the early, early start of the Internet and dial-up and, I mean, America Online. What year was that, and how would you get in there? I was at Time Warner, and uh, when they, I went back to, after MTV, I went back to Warner just as we were merging with Time. And uh, I got the new handed to do all the new business stuff. So I went out and bought Six Flags theme parks, ran it. Certain point, the Jerry LeBen, Steve Ross passed away. Jerry LeBen was in charge. He needed to raise money. And I owned a little piece of Six Flags. So I said, Jerry, I was in the board meeting when the board put a pressure on him. And I go, you know, Jerry, I think we could sell Six Flags and we could get a, take a billion dollars out and still own 49%. He said, if you can do that deal, do it. I managed to put the deal together, did it. And then I was out of a job and I was on the board of a company called HFS, Henry Silverman, and they were just buying Century 21 real estate. And Henry called me and said, listen, Bob, I just saw the Wall Street Journal leaving. I was on his board, by the way, at HFS. And he said, if you'll come fix up uh, Century 21, uh, I'll sell you 10% of it at a very cheap price. So you get cap gains on it and, uh, and you only have to stay a year. And I go, no, nah, I'm not. Gonna. And I kept going back to this. I was <laughs> looking at other things. So I go, okay, I'll do it. And when I went there, I realized I knew nothing about real estate. The internet was not quite there. It was still online services, proprietary computer networks, uh, you know, Prodigy, CompuServe, AOL. Oh, my God, CompuServe. And, and I said, this internet thing's coming. This seems to be hot. No real estate companies online. I said, I, I think we should be online. So I call up this guy named Steve Case because he's running AOL. I said, it looks like the best of them. I go have lunch with him, and he and Ted Leonsis was with him. And I said... Uh, you know, I want to be your exclusive real estate area on AOL, and I'll pay you $1 million a year. $1 million. And they go, wow, we'll take that. And so I cut a deal, and as I'm leaving a lunch, he goes, you know, would you like to be on my board? I think we could use your expertise. And so I went on the AOL board just to sort of learn about stuff. And about a year later, 
the you know there were pressures going on and steve and and and, and i was still on the board asked me would i come down and be you know sort of run stuff and i with steve and i go yeah that might be fun can i stop you there see now this is interesting because what i find with very successful people often when they are thrown an opportunity about which they know nothing they dive in. It's like when Teddy Roosevelt, the president, said, if somebody asks you to do something you don't know how to do, say, sure, I can, and then start learning how to do it. By the way, it's more fun. Like, why would I want to do the same? Like, I get a little bored when I'm doing the same thing. You know, the reason I love my job is because just about the time I say, well, we've sort of done that, then you go podcasting. That's new or metaverse or whatever else. It's AI. This stuff's all fun and it's a platform to do it. And to me, my career has been about, not about money and not about building a career. It's been about doing fun things and doing things that are stimulating and challenging. And fortunately, I've made money. But if I didn't make a lot of money, I'd still be happy and rewarded. Well, speaking of fun, nothing I'm thinking could be more fun than MTV and the founding of the Music Television Network. How did that germinate? Well, I was at NBC Radio. My my biggest mentor there by that time was a guy named Herb Schlosser who ran NBC. Herb got kicked upstairs, so everybody, Lorne Michaels, Dick Ebersole, me, others all go, well, my star's fallen, I'm going to leave. And I got approached by Warner and American Express forming a company to build networks for cable. Remember, cable was only in about 18% of America then. And they were going to build these big cities, and they needed cable-only networks. So I got recruited to be the head of programming for this company called Warner MX Satellite Entertainment Corporation. First network we did was the movie channel, which did really well for a while. And then they said, we're ready to do another one. And I pitched the idea of a video radio station. I'd done a show on NBC after Saturday Night Live called Album Tracks that I hosted and produced. And I said, let's do the radio. Let's do the FM, what FM did to AM. Let's add one more component. They added stereo. We're going to add video. Mm. And and I played around with video clips on the show album tracks. And I had a boss, uh, two bosses actually, John Lack and uh, Jack Schneider, who liked the idea, supportive of the idea. Um, the board of directors wouldn't say yes. We got a meeting with the head of American Express, the head of Warner, gave him a pitch and they go, let's do it. MTV did not invent music videos, no, right? In the 60s, even. the Beatles filmed themselves performing and paired that with appearances on, on the Ed Sullivan show. But MTV was the first to create an entire channel that was to be run like a radio station, only on TV. Who came up with the VJ, the video DJ idea? Well, that's, look, that was all of mine, which was, we're going to make a video radio station. And, you know, the people would say, why do you need people? You just got these video clips. And I would go, because... We need humans because people bond with humans. Yeah, and the reaction. And I come out of radio where there's such, we're going to keep people company. And if you think about it in the most basic terms, MTV was the TikTok of our day. People just tuned in to just while away the day. And they wanted to talk to Martha Quinn. They wanted to see Mark Goodman. They wanted to see Nina Blackwood. They, it was just part of their life. And they were just mesmerized the same way they are with TikTok today. How did you? pick the VJs? What was your qualification the for The idea of the VJs, I wanted five people that sort of represented America. And so we looked deliberately for that. When we did all these auditions, very hard when you say, I want you to audition for something you've never seen. It was like people were either a newscaster or they were Johnny Carson and nobody sort of got it right. And uh, J.J. Jackson came because I was in the Montreux Jazz Festival. 
with Brian May from Queen and his manager, Jim Beach. Mm. And we were, they were saying, I was telling about this idea, and they go, oh, you need to hire J.J. Jackson from KLOS in L.A. He does the best interviews. Okay, put him on our list. And uh, Martha Quinn was the last one who came in. And we had, were closing down auditions this day. I get a call from WNBC, the guy who'd been my assistant PD. He says, hey, we got this intern over here, Martha Quinn. She's great. You should put her on. I go, oh, you're intern. Right. Okay. <laughs> if she can be there by 5 o'clock, we'll put her on, on, on tape. And the next morning, the guy said, we got to come see you, Bob. And they said, you know that, that, that woman you sent over, a girl they actually yeah. said at that time, you sent over to us, you got to see this. And they go, wow, she's a natural. So that's how she got in. And so each one had a little story like that. Uh, Alan Hunter was married to a Methodist preacher's daughter from Mississippi. And they have a picnic in New York at that time for Mississippians. And I met him there and said, go over and do an audition. Oh, my God. I mean, the day of the launch of MTV, were you nervous? Oh, yeah, nervous. I think more focused. And everything went wrong. People have the first hour of MTV. That was not the first hour of MTV. That was the recreated what we wanted the first hour of MTV to look like. Everything went wrong. And I, we, we, we're not on in Manhattan. We're on in we're at a, a, a restaurant over in New Jersey where it was carrying MTV so we could launch. And I'm on a pay phone, four days of Stop. cell phones, with the, with the network operations. They're saying, what the hell's going on? This and that. So we're trying to work through all these problems. Uh, nobody had ever done stereo TV. And in some of the production studios where we had done it, it sounded great in stereo, but if it were in mono, it canceled out because they reversed the polarity. And so there were sections of MTV that were suddenly like, Dark. No, you didn't hear anything. So everything went wrong, but we survived. Exactly. I mean, as we say, it's not how the market opens, it's how it closes. And boy, did you close a, a great start to MTV. Um, you know, some of the iconic videos I'm thinking of, Kaja Gugu's Too Shy, Duran Duran's Rio. You know, critics started to say only gorgeous singers could make it onto MTV, but I saw it really differently. If you weren't gorgeous... You had to be hilarious or a good actor, like ZZ Top in that compelling video, Legs, Tom Petty in the Heartbreakers, Mary Jane's Last Dance. Amazing. You know what's interesting is what MTV did for the music business was radio still broke the records. What MTV did is it made the musicians celebrities. Before MTV, remember there's no big screen, there's no internet, no nothing. They don't know what anybody looks like. So you can be the biggest star in the world, walk down the street, no one stops you. After MTV, the musicians started saying, hey, I got stopped on the street. People saying, I saw you on MTV. That became the refrain. So we turned them into celebrities. And that was probably the biggest impact we had, which then, of course, changed their lives for a concert touring, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was unbelievable. Some of these singers that would jump around. I mean, I, again, I bring up Duran Duran because of Rio, them dancing around on a boat. And um, that would just be so fabulous. iconic. Right. Uh, but it took a long time, what, two years after the launch before you had a black act or a black singer. It was Michael Jackson. Actually, that's not true. Tell me. Uh, we set had, the record we straight. We had black acts on MTV. We had, if you remember, Tipper Gore and Susan Baker had all these hearings about the terrible oh, stuff with music. right. So it caused us to have to set up a community standards review for all the videos. And a guy They named, hated rap, And right? well, a guy named Rick James submitted a video... And it didn't pass community standards, so we didn't play it. Rick James says they don't play black music on MTV. Well, that wasn't true. I mean, by the way, there were a lot of black acts that were on, most of them because they didn't make videos. There were a lot of white acts. Bruce Springsteen hadn't made a, a video yet mm -hmm. that weren't on. 
And so, and I'm with these naive young kids. Well, of course, everybody will look and see that we, they don't. The story gets legs. So we decide the only way we're going to, like, you know, kill this story is just to go overboard and find something. About that time, Quincy Jones produces this Michael Jackson album. And we go, oh, this is great. And by the way, he was what we would consider the first MTV performer because he combined performing oh. with music. And so we get this video, Billie Jean, it goes on. We get Beat It, it goes on. And then he's got a third video he wants to do, Thriller, but the record company would only pay for two videos. We didn't want to set a precedent of paying Hang for it. videos. Sure. So we t- figured out this way that we got Vestron Video and Showtime to kick in with us. We paid for the, a documentary called The Making of Thriller. Embedded in the documentary was the budget to make Thriller. So we could say, we've never paid for video. And we launched it, and we had probably the highest ratings MTV it had ever had and has ever had since when we played it. Because remember, there's no on-demand anything. So every hour, people would tune in to watch that thing called Thriller oh. on MTV and was a huge it one. It was we huge. We would sit and wait till it came back yeah. on. And so that was such a, a, a focal point, and it came out of something so negative and so painful for everybody at MTV to be accused of something like that was awful. And, uh, but it led on. And then I, kept, I think MTV realized we had to work extra hard to make sure we weren't accused of something. And so probably coming out of it was something very positive. All right. So let the record show. And this is important because companies and people should be allowed to make mistakes if they're going to fix it. Or, and I'm not saying it was a mistake overall. I'm just saying that you can change the perception and you were allowed to. A lot of companies aren't allowed to these days. They get canceled. And by the way, it's also the truth still is that often the story is not the truth. Um, but when the when the story is the story, you're stuck with it. And that's a hard lesson to learn. Mm-hmm. Thank God I learned it early. And uh, in this case, I mean, like Tina Turner and there were a lot of other black artists, but they were sort of like they didn't weren't noticed. Well, there's that famous David Bowie video where he's talking to Mark Goodman and he kind of yeah. turned the tables and he's asking why, where are the black artists, etc. And you know, it was obvious there was a lot of struggling in in the messaging there. Well, by but the way, I think you don't ask a VJ because the VJ didn't pick any of the videos. Right. I mean, right. he he performed on it, Can so it was the wrong person to ask. That, that the Tipper Gore era, where Congress demanded that rap be banned. I mean. By the way, Big we changes. had a community standards. And by the way, the reason the Rick James video was not, because we went back and obviously said, why, why couldn't we play? It's because they were scantily clad in a hot tub. And you go, today you go, doesn't that seem quaint? Oh, my. Oh, yeah. I want to fast forward to Clear Channel, which eventually became iHeartMedia. It was drowning in debt. It felt chimerical, which is an SAT word, by the way, formed from parts of various animals. You took this thing over, and you have turned it into the most unbelievable entertainment company, in my opinion, because you now put on these concerts. I I think of Jingle Ball, where you've got a bunch of acts packed in. I mean, I feel like of the year. Yeah, I feel like you helped launch the careers of young up and comers. I mean, for example, I went one year; I'd never heard of Charlie Puth before Jingle Ball, and suddenly he's everywhere. That's iHeartRadio's concerts, isn't it? Yeah, we, we do We do the iHeartRadio Music Festival, and we launched that originally because we built this thing called the iHeartRadio app. 
I didn't want to launch it like a startup would do it. So we got to do something big. And so I said, you know, we're, we're going to redo Live Aid, where we had all these acts that collaborated with each other, all sharing one stage. And so we did it in the worst month of the year in Vegas, September. And we got country act, a rap act, a pop act, an icon act, and all that, and put them all together on one stage for two nights. And one afternoon, we did some young acts. And, uh, and it was such a success that we said, you know, we're going to do it every year. And uh, it became, obviously, our, our trademark monster concert and Jingle Ball more for sort of the pop fans. It's amazing. I mean, and I also find it absolutely fascinating that you started in radio and then were accused of killing radio, but now you've revived radio, not just with music, but with podcasts. I mean, you carry my podcast. Thank you so much. What's the future of podcasting? Because there are millions of them now, and anyone who can open their mouth and get in front of a a microphone that they can buy at Best Buy has a podcast. Yeah, it's sort of like websites. Everybody could have a website, but not many of them got a lot of usage. Mm -hmm. It was still concentrated, and it's sort of the same thing here, but everybody can be discovered. And to me, podcasting is great because it's the radio experience. I'm keeping you company, but it's on demand as opposed to real time. And so we can do some things like we can on this show. We can go really in deep. Yeah. Radio is sort of, I'm covering a lot of stuff, but sort of thin. Podcasts is I'm not covering as much, but I'm going really deep on it. Right. And, uh, and I think it's wildly exciting. And it's so fun because people say, oh, people don't listen to the radio. They, they don't listen to stuff. They and you go, yes, they do. Uh, and, oh, young people don't. Yes, they do. Podcasting has just changed people's ideas and, and shot down a lot of these uh, these myths. Which podcast do you listen to that you really love? Well, you look, I, 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 it's not ours. I love The Daily. It's great. Yep. Ours, of course, Times. is I love uh, How Stuff Works, which is the biggest podcast of all time. I think we've had three billion downloads to that now. Whoa. And, uh, and we've got and every week. Mine has a million. Congratulations. You get the <laughs> million award. You. you get the platinum record if this were in the music business. <laughs> I need that. Um, but Will Pearson, who, who runs our podcasting for us, sends around weekly three or four for all the senior execs. Here are three or four you should listen to this weekend. And it's just great because every weekend there are three or four great ones, new ones. And I just think it's, it's spectacular, the creativity that's coming out of it. And you think about it, it's it's bigger now than the biggest music streaming services, podcasting. Uh, I mean, it is going way mass market. Um, So it's not a fad. It's a thing. It's a thing. This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we're going to be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In between your entire career and this multiple exciting events that you put on, you launched a tequila brand, Bob, Casa Dragonis. Ah, that's my, my pet project. You're hilarious. How do you launch a tequila brand? I owned a, a house in Mexico in a little town called San Miguel de Allende, north of Mexico City, old UNESCO World Heritage Site, very Mexican. And I would spend, this was when I really wasn't working, and I would spend two months a year there, just sort of move in. And the expats, this big expat town, 
loved this bootleg tequila because it was so smooth. It didn't have what's called that wince factor, you know, where you have to have some salt or lime or something. <laughs> and, uh, and everybody ran around with it. And my son was working as the hotel manager at the Wynn in Vegas. He brings his buddy down and runs one of the nightclubs in Vegas. They come down for a weekend. We drink this stuff. And the next morning, his friend says, you know, Mr. Pittman, I get $1,000 a bottle of Cristal in my club. I could get $10,000 a jug for this. So I go, wow. So a sipping tequila that's smooth has real value. I go back to New York. I know no one in the spirits business. I'm at a party in Brooklyn. And I meet this woman and is chatting with somebody at a party. And somewhere in the conversation, I said, what do you do for a living? She goes, well, I run Jose Cuervo in North America. I go, ah, it's fate. <laughs> Quit your job and be my partner. I have a great idea. And that's how we sort of started on this journey, Berto Gonzalez and I, and who's the CEO. And uh, it's been just a, a great, fun thing. And, and it's one of those businesses where there was no pressure to have it be a business. And we said, and she and I agree, we said, at every step of the way, if we can't make the best tequila, let's just shut the business down. Okay. If we can't do this, let's shut the business down. And we just said, we're, we, I don't want to be in some terrible business where I'm just marketing, trying right. to get a, I want it to be really a differentiated product. And it's really lived up to it. We now have our, we not only, we've launched with the Hoven, which is just super smooth, but we have the, we did the Blanco and we did the Añejo. And now we have this wonderful Reposado that's aged in a, in the uh, Japanese oak barrels. And it's the only thing other than Japanese whiskeys that are aged in these, are rested in these Japanese oak barrels. This is so over my head. I, I just, I this is so hilarious because I'm I'm thinking, well, wait, he's, these are all different price points. What's the most expensive bottle you well, have? Well, the Hoven is about $275 a bottle. Okay. And then the and least the expensive? the least expensive is the Blanco. It probably retail up 50 60 bucks okay. a bottle. And uh, and the others are in the sort of mid-hundreds. And uh, But if you like tequila, there's nothing better. And it is the smoothest tequila. We make it a different way. <laughs> it's still legally tequila. And um, we made it smooth. God, you're you're just kind of a, a what's the word I'm looking? At? You're just kind of a Renaissance guy. You just do so many things. I want to end with this because we have some listeners who dream of making it in the music industry, whether it's on the talent side or the executive side. What would you say is the number one characteristic that people must have to really succeed? Whether it's on the executive side, the business side, or up on stage? To be doing it for something other than making it. Be, to be doing it because they love it. And not think about, am I making it? Am I a star? Am I a big deal? And if you love what you're doing, you to actually, ironically, stand the best chance of succeeding. Uh, I used to tell when I was on the radio, when I was a radio programmer, I used to tell, there was always the weekend disc jockey, always wanted to get a full-time job and work during the week. And the people who got the full-time job were the people who just focused on being a great weekend disc jockey. The people who focused on getting the full-time job never did. I was always the weekend anchor. I was never the main babe. And those main people are still in small-town Ohio. And here and, you are. And here I am. But it's also just love what you're doing. I, mean, yeah, I would tell people true. when they say, well, I want to succeed in life. I go, you know what? Just find something you love. love. You're going to spend more time working than you will spending the money you make at work. So do something that you can't wait to get to work in the morning. At the end of the day, you're sort of sorry that the work has to come to an end and you have to go to sleep. And if you do that and you can make enough money to pay the bills, aren't you ahead? Amen, Bob. Thank you so much for sitting with us in studio. This is so exciting. I love it. I, I love, love it. being in a radio studio. This is fantastic. Oh, I just, oh, you're 
voice is just so like like tequila. Oh, you're so nice. <laughs> Bob Pittman, everybody. Thank you very, very much. And and folks, again, I hope that this is like gold to you, that you take these messages from my guests and you run with them as fast and far as you can, but love doing it. Just enjoy it. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'll see you Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern on The Claim and Countdown, which I love doing. Want to listen ad-free? You can do it with a Fox News Podcasts Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And then Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.